Romans chapter 3. And I think I'll just hit you with a punchline before we get started. It's not polite to tell the punchline before you tell the joke, but I'm not joking. So in Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, Paul is going to appeal to a passage in the Psalms written by David, Psalm 32, 1 and 2. He will also appeal to a narrative in Genesis, which is the Torah, part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, in order to show that his gospel is affirmed in Torah, even though it's a Torah-free gospel. And he will use the great narrative of Abraham. And in Romans 4, 6 through 8, in quoting Psalm 32, 1 to 2, Paul says, quoting David, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not account sin. Or we could even say impute sin. Blessed is the man. Because David experienced this in his own life. That God did not impute sin to him. And we know that we're going to figure that out from Romans chapter 3. But then the punchline is in 2 Corinthians 5.19. Paul's great declaration. That God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself. Not imputing their trespasses to them interesting though an individual can have that happiness of knowing that sin is not imputed to him or her Paul says God didn't impute the sins of the world to the world so could we say happy is the world to whom the Lord will not impute sin just something I thought I'd hit you with that right at the start so if I lose you now you got something to think about. So I, I lose some people in the first five minutes, some in the last 15 minutes. So think about that. Just put Romans 4, 6 through 8 with 2 Corinthians five twenty one, And, well, think about it. Now, Romans is something that we're really preparing the path to teach Romans someday. I'm not really teaching the book of Romans in earnest, but to me, the Holy Spirit is guiding us to have a robust engagement with the verses with the texts in Paul's epistles. The series is called Better Call Paul. This is the 39th installment of Better Call Paul. And when we called Paul, we asked him this question. This is the one question we want to keep in our minds throughout this entire series. Do all of your epistles taken together present to the reader's view a vision of Jesus Christ in his all saving significance and we have seen that that is the case in the book of revelation and i have yet to teach on a comparison of revelation and romans but does your gospel paul present a vision of jesus christ in his all saving significance if so then that vision becomes what by analogy we could refer to in joshua 3 as a clear view by the people of God of the ark, which splits the Jordan River and allows the people of God to go into the promised land. And that's what I think God is trying to grip the church with today. A lot of, a lot of the church are going to be very slow on the uptake. The pioneers of this message are going to have to endure quite a bit of opposition, but that's just part of the identification with Christ. Now we saw the strategy of Paul in Romans. 
which was essentially outlined in an epistle that he wrote a couple of years before he wrote Romans. I think he had this strategy in mind in 2 Corinthians 10. I'll quote my translation of 3 through 5. For although we walk around in the flesh, Paul said, we do not wage war according to the flesh. And we are at war. And this war is a good war. War, this war, what is it good for? Absolutely everything. Although we walk around in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh because the weapons deployed in our campaign are not fleshly, Paul says. On the contrary, they are powerful through God for the destruction of fortresses. Paul is destroying a fortress, which is the teaching of a special teacher in Romans And he destroys this citadel or this main fortress, mainly in Romans chapters 1 through 4. He is destroying the main fortress. And throughout Romans, he has to pick up a captive here and there or a smaller outpost here and there until he's finally defeated this other gospel. But they are powerful through God, our weapons that we deploy for the takedown also of contrary reasoning like the legalistic or nomistic reasoning of the gospel of this false teacher, whom we have seen emerge slowly in our study. In verse 5, and every lofty thing, which is arguments, every lofty argument raised up in opposition against the knowledge of God. That's the knowledge of God's true essential being, which we know to be not retributive justice, but unlimited benevolence, which is a good definition for love. God is love. The Gospels that that are loftily opposed to the knowledge of God present God as a God of retribution and wrath, as the teacher does in Romans 1.18. Paul says in 1.17, in the Gospel, God is apocalyptically revealing Apocalypto. Paul is God is apocalyptically revealing the righteousness of God. Now I'm giving you the punchline and then showing you eight ways we arrive at this conclusion that dikaiosune theu, the righteousness of God as it is often translated, should rather be translated the deliverance of God. It is depicting a saving act of God in Christ. An all-saving act of God in Christ is my argument. And it is an unconditional all-saving act of God in Christ. God was in Christ. Jesus said in John 14, believe me that I am in my Father. That very statement, I am in my Father, indicates an equality of essence, name, rank, and being with his Father. And that my Father is in me. I in my Father, my Father in me, indicates, again, something he said earlier in John 10.30, repeating in John 14.10 and 11, when he says, I and the Father are one. They are one in an operation called deliverance and salvation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing the world's trespasses to them, And then he is imputed to us or imparted to us or given to us and trusted to us this message of reconciliation. 
And we say, be reconciled to God, for he who knew no sin became sin for us, died to sin for us and as us, as we've seen in Romans 6, 7. And that's to make us the evidence of the deliverance of God in him. So in Paul's gospel, the righteousness of God, which is the right act of the sovereign king to rescue his people and to rescue the domain over which he has rule. The domain over which God, the king, has rule, and also his, his human representative, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God and man in one person. The domain over which they have rule is all of creation. The people over which they have rule is all humanity. It is only right, we could even say it is only just, that God, the king, would act to rescue his domain and to rescue his people. Dikaiosune theu should not be translated, therefore, as the justice of God, nor should it be translated as the righteousness of God, but it should be translated as the deliverance of God, which we understand to be the right thing for the king to do. We'll be showing there's eight ways of approaching that translation. I've seen them all gone through them all but we're engaging the text so paul continues the strategy in second corinthians 10 5 by saying not only do we destroy fortresses which is the takedown of contrary reasoning like the false gospel and every lofty thing or argument raised up in opposition against the knowledge of god but we also subdue every purpose to obedience to christ and the most difficult task is to bring into obedience to a Christological salvation the ideas of pe that people have of salvation. In other words, the great emphasis falls upon Christ and not upon mankind, upon Christ as the unilateral fulfillment of God's covenant fidelity, unilaterally, rather than upon some condition to be met by man. And otherwise... We would not have an apocalypse of the all-saving Christ. John's gospel is an apocalypse of an all-saving Christ. Behold, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world. When he sent his son, he sent a righteousness from God into the world. For God has made him to be for us righteousness god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world as if god were a god of retributive justice but rather that the world would be saved through him for god is a god of love of hope of peace and the god of peace will trample under feet shortly the one who animates this teacher also known as Satan. Apocalypto, then. Paul's gospel, the gospel of God, all about his son whom he raised from the dead, is an apocalypse of the deliverance of God. Whereas the teacher begins his turn or burn message in, Revel in Romans 1.18 by saying, the wrath of God is being apocalypto. There's a great, whether you know it or not, there is a radical opposition between Paul's gospel and this other gospel. 
And the most radical distinction is found in the way God is portrayed. So it's a theological distinction. Is the gospel called the good news a revelation of Jesus Christ in his saving significance? Or is it a revelation of the wrath of God in Romans 1.18 to 32? Jesus Christ is never even mentioned in this teacher's gospel whereas he's mentioned quite fully in Paul's. On top of the strategy that Paul outlines in 2 Corinthians, there is also a declaration he makes in Philippians, which I think may have been written in the same year as Romans, just before Romans was written. And that is in Philippians 1.7. In Philippians 1.7, Paul outlines his strategy and says to the Philippians in 1.6, He said, I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. But then he goes on in the sentence and says in verse 7, even as it is fitting to me, for me, to be minded on behalf of you all in this way, because you have me in your heart. He was speaking of the Philippians and their love for him, even though he was incarcerated and awaiting trial. You have me in your heart, and because you are my partners... In grace, both while I am in these chains of mine, and notice this last phrase of Philippians 1 7, and while I am engaged in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Generally speaking, in Romans 1 1 to 4, Paul is engaged in a robust defense of his gospel against an opposing gospel by someone Douglas Campbell calls the teacher, but he got that word from the teacher from J. Lewis Martin in his commentary on Galatians in which he called the false teachers. there simply the teachers and they were the ones that came into Galatia and Paul battled them. And so in Galatia, he sort of got practice for Romans Romans one to four, generally speaking and throughout Romans from time to time is Paul defending his gospel. Romans 5 through 8 is Paul confirming his gospel. And that's the gospel that the Roman auditors of his epistle had heard. It was the gospel to which they subscribed. They knew it, but he anticipated that they would be challenged. Romans, therefore, is built into four identifiable sections, 1 to 4, 5 through 8, Then the great problem of what about Israel's unbelief, Israel after the flesh, the very people of God originally, why are they in unbelief? Paul goes, of course, to climax that in 1132 because God intended to shut up both Jews and Gentiles in disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. 12 to 16 then is also a section largely an exhortation or encouragement uh, with have, has to do with ethics, which I write like this in my notes, ethics. So these are very identifiable sections in Romans. There are four of them. Romans, the body of Romans ends with 1513. Then he gets into greetings and other things. But 1513 ends the body of the letter with Paul's efficacious wish for his hearers that the God of hope would fill them with hope and that they would have the peace 
or the maximum joy and peace that comes with believing. The maximum joy and peace that comes with believing. So the epistle of Paul to the Romans is perhaps the most important example of Paul's defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says it probably in the same year he writes Romans in Philippians. I am appointed for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. In Romans 1, 18 to 3.20, and we finished looking at it, at least taking a first pass at it here on Sunday mornings of all times. And then on through Romans 4, as we're going to see, Romans 4 is a deliberate side trip by Paul, only it's an extremely important one, in which he shows that his gospel is affirmed in Torah itself. Even though his gospel reveals a deliverance of God that has nothing to do with Torah observance, he shows that Torah, the scriptures, bear witness to this gospel. And he shows it through a pretty long narrative regarding Abraham. The mistake that we make, that I have made in Romans 4, is that we think that it looks like Paul is radically showing the opposition between justification by faith, which Abraham is supposed to be a pattern for, versus justification by works. But that's not what he's saying. It looks like he's saying that in what is known as a thin reading, which I would call a superficial reading. The thicker, more in-depth reading reveals that the real contrast is between the works of the law and the faithfulness of Messiah to God his Father, even as Abraham believed not in the Lord Jesus, but in God. Abraham believed in God. God credited that trust in God that he would bring forth a son, Isaac, and that that also pictures forward God's own son who was not spared as Isaac was spared. And so when you say, when did Abraham get saved then? I think he got saved, if you want to talk about that, in Genesis 12, God appeared to him. God promised him. God told him what to do, and Abraham did it. That's not, the, that's not a pagan. He's, he was called out of the Ur of Chaldees. He was, we could say, saved at his call. But as many as God called, those he also justified. What we have in, we're going to see it, and I'm just, for, I'm just forewarning you or anticipating What we have is not Abraham as a pattern of justification by faith, but Abraham's whole life as an illustration of the faithfulness of Messiah and salvation that comes through the faithfulness of Messiah. When Abraham believed God or the Lord or Yahweh, when Abraham believed God, God credited that trust to him as the mark of his salvation, as the mark of his deliverance. In other words, those who are delivered have a mark that describes their deliverance, and it's called faithfulness. It's the participation in the faithfulness of Messiah. A thin and superficial, we could call it Lutheran, to be general, reading of that, and I feel bad because Luther wrote that song, A Mighty Fortress, which is a, it was a beer hall song, but the tune was kept and the words were changed. So it was written in a beer hall. Those Germans... Tell you, you got to watch out for him. Talk about theology in a tavern. That's terrible. But in Romans, especially 118 to 320, then on through Romans 4, 
as well as it points to. In fact, we have boasting again. In Romans 3.27, the teacher says, well, then where is boasting? And Paul says it's excluded. But then in Romans 4, in a translation that no translation I've ever seen captures, Richard Hayes captured it back in the 80s, and it was refined, and it, it is according to the Greek text. It doesn't say, what do we say that Abraham, our forefather after the flesh, has discovered? It says, have we discovered that Abraham is our forefather after the flesh? And that's the teacher talking. And then the teacher says, if Abraham were justified by works, he has a reason to boast. So there's boasting. And Paul says, yeah, but not before God. Not in God's presence, he doesn't have a right to boast. And that's what Paul's talking about. We have no right to boast. Paul said to the Corinthians, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. How that not many noble born among you, there are not many royal or noble minded or high intellects among you. And consider that very calling as being a demonstration that God will have no flesh boast in his presence. In 1 Corinthians one twenty nine, And then last week's message says this, for God, it's God's doing that you are in Christ. It's God's doing that you are in Christ. Whom God made to be for us righteousness or deliverance, redemption, wisdom, and sanctification. He made him to be all in all for us. Those are just hints of where we're going. But in Romans one eighteen to 3.20, and on through Romans 4, as well as at points thereafter, in Romans 9 and 10 also, he brings every stray thought to obedience of Christ. He defends the gospel against a nomistic gospel, a gospel of law, of law observance, of an evidently famous Christian Jewish teacher. I said this week, the main thing about a dialectic, the main objective of Paul in this dialectic is not just to destroy this teacher, but to convert him to his viewpoint. Did Paul convert this teacher to his viewpoint? I think there are reasons to say, Yes, he did. So he goes after the citadel, not just to destroy this other teacher, but to win this other teacher. And he may just well have done it. We don't know for sure, but I'm assuming it's possible. So then, in Romans, Paul considers, he confirms the gospel of God. It's all about his son in Romans 5 through 8, which is anticipated first in Romans 1, 2b to 4, then in Romans 1, 16 to 17, and then where we're going to look today, Romans 3, 21 to 31, and then again in Romans 4, 23 and 25. So after he effectively lays charges on this main fortress of the teacher's gospel in Romans 1, 18 to 320, and shuts it down, its main fortress, he launches into a paragraph which anticipates the unchained gospel that Paul preaches that these Roman Christians had heard and should be established in it. He says in the end of Romans, I want you to be strengthened by my gospel, confirmed in this gospel, because the assaults are going to come, and the teacher's going to make his arrival, and he's going to make his case so to be forewarned is to be forearmed. That's what a lot of preaching does. 
And so now we're going to hit this. Let's have what I call a robust engagement with the text. This is where the preacher is told to labor exhaustively, labor to the point of exhaustion, wrestling with the texts like Jacob wrestled with a man till the breaking of day. That's what I view as going into the text. A robust engagement with the biblical text is like wrestling all night with the God man. And so Romans 3.21 says this. Again, Paul effectively launches into a paragraph which anticipates the illumination and confirmation of the gospel that God gave to him as an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.21. But now, Paul says, after shutting every mouth in the world, in verses 19 and 20, especially the teacher's mouth, that every mouth may be closed. Again, that's with regard to boasting, that every mouth may be closed. He's pretty much shut down the main fortress of the teacher's gospel. Then he says, but now, without any involvement of the law, without any involvement of the law, The saving act of God in Christ, that's how I would, again, translate the righteousness of God. A righteousness from God or a righteousness of God or the saving act of God in Christ. He's saying the same thing here that he says in Romans 117. He's not ashamed of the gospel because therein the saving act of God in Christ is being apocalyptically revealed. The teacher begs to differ. No, it's the orge theu. The wrath of God is being revealed. Look what he's done to the pagans. And Paul says, well, if he's done that to the pagans, he's going to do it to you too. He's going to do it to all of us. If he's a God of retributive justice, then we're all, we've all had it. But now, without any involvement of the law, the saving act of God in Christ is being revealed. This time we got a synonym for apocalypto. Paul stacks it up. When he uses another word, It means he's stacking up the meaning of this. This one is phanerao, which is usually translated as manifested, but it's the same. It's a synonym with apocalypto. He says, so he's repeating it, which he said in 117. But now without any involvement of the law, the saving act of God in Christ is being revealed and then he says, to re- he is, it is being revealed to those who have faith. It is being revealed to those who have faith. A deliverance that is attested by the law. There's a salvation from God, which is in Christ, that is apart from the law, apart from involvement with observance to the law that is being revealed to, not imputed to, but revealed to people of faith, people who have faith, trust, faithfulness. That is the mark of that deliverance. So please note that this deliverance of God is both apart from Torah and attested in Torah. Torah itself attests of a salvific act of God That has nothing to do with adherence to Torah. It is something that God does. In Christ for mankind and for all of creation. And right now, if you're attuned to it, 
Creation is literally screaming for deliverance, groaning intensely for deliverance, which is coming. So please note that this deliverance of God is both apart from Torah and attested in Torah, as Paul will make clear in Romans 4, especially with the narrative of Abraham, and coupled with the testimony of David in 332, 1 and 2. Paul focuses, especially in Genesis 1, 15, 6, where God credited Abraham's trust in him to be a sign of his deliverance, which happened, of course, this deliverance, this sign of deliverance happened 13 years, as he's going to go on to describe it, before he was circumcised. So circumcision can have nothing to do with salvation. The sign that someone has been delivered by God is not circumcision, but faith, believing, faithfulness, or trust which is describing not a legal term, but describing what we call the Christian life, life in the spirit. So before, before Abraham was circumcised, Paul shows, the crediting of trust in God as the mark of deliverance was also written for us who have the same credit applied as those who trust in God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. You know what this announces? Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. A righteousness from God is Christ sent from God. Salvation is of the Lord. Psalm 3.8 declares it. Jonah quoted it in the belly of a whale shark, and it's reminiscent of what Messiah said, metaphorically speaking, in Psalm 1610, Jesus, from the belly of the earth, as Jonah in the belly of the fish, he said, for you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see the pit. Continuing in Romans 3.22, that is a saving act. Let's go back to 321 so we can put this together. This is how I wrestle with the text. But now, without any involvement of the law, the saving act of God in Christ is being revealed. A deliverance that is attested by the law and the prophets. The prophets, Habakkuk 2.4, Isaiah 28.16, many other passages. The Torah, Genesis 15, also Genesis 17, Genesis 22. Abraham offering his son, his son being spared pointing to the Son, Jesus Christ, who is not spared and raised from the dead. Romans 3.22 goes on to say, that is a saving act enacted entirely by God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. A saving act, which is righteousness, should be translated as a saving act, which is right for a king to do, enacted entirely by God. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. Enacted entirely by God through what? The faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Same as he says in Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God or the saving act of God in Christ is being apocalyptically revealed from faithfulness. That's the fidelity of God demonstrated in Christ to faithfulness. 
That's the faithfulness of Christ that continues in his people as his people participate in his fidelity, which is a sign of their calling and of their deliverance, not the means of appropriating that deliverance. The means of appropriating that deliverance is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This is a Christ-centered gospel. Unlike the so-called Luther, Lutheran reading, which is anthropocentric largely. Again, 322. It's going to take a while to make this clear, so don't worry about it. A saving act entirely by God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that is being revealed or disclosed, revealed to those who have faith. That is, meaning, as we'll show you, those who have faith as a gifted participation in Messiah's fidelity. A gifted participation in Messiah's fidelity. Or don't you know that as many as were incorporated into Christ were also incorporated into his death, baptized into his death, and he, Christ, is the one who died to sin. If Christ died to sin, we were baptized into his death to sin. So how, the, how can we that are dead to sin, because we're incorporated in the one who died to sin, continue any longer therein? That's where we were on Wednesday and Thursday night in a robust engagement with the text from Romans 5.12 through Romans 6.7. Wow. No wonder I'm wasted. 322, that is a saving act enacted entirely by God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that is being disclosed to. Please notice it does not say being imputed to, logizomai, or credited to those who have faith, but being disclosed to, revealed to, manifested to those who have faith. It's a retrospective analysis. Once you're in Christ, You see this. You don't know God unless you know him in Christ. For if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he said. You don't know God, like the teacher says, they had the epinosis of God, the full knowledge of God through the creation. No, you don't know God through the creation. You know God in Christ Jesus or you don't know God. So in Christ Jesus... God reveals to us himself. Again, be patient. Please notice then that the deliverance that Paul, that God is revealing is not imputed to those who have faith, but that it is revealed to those who have faith, and they have it by a gift from God, a gifted participation with Christ which comes with the calling. That is, to those who are in Christ Jesus and living by the faithfulness of the Son of God. What was Paul's testimony? I was crucified with Christ. In the act of God in Christ, I was crucified with Christ. His story is my story. His history is my history. Nevertheless, I live. And yet it is not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, in Christ he means, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
for he was handed over for our sins and raised up for our deliverance. Romans 4.25 will say. It is being revealed by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 15, Paul put it this way in paraphrase. He says, we have not received the spirit of this age, but the spirit of God that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. Among those things that are freely given to us by God is the deliverance that God has given to us and the faithfulness that God has gifted us with. It is not. These things are not discerned by the natural man, by the Adamic ontology, by people who are still clinging to the Adamic existence, who are perishing. Perishing means clinging to the Adamic existence, clinging to the Adamic ontology, thinking with the mind of the flesh, which is death. It's perishing. But to those of us that are being saved, that word of the cross counted foolish by the perishing, those clinging to the Adamic ontology, to us, who are the the ones being saved, it's the very power and the very wisdom of God, that word of the cross. We'll be getting into 1 Corinthians 1 also. But Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians, these things that we have are spiritually discerned. They're a result of the Holy Spirit teaching the renewed person. It cannot be discerned by the people in Adam. It cannot be discerned by Christians clinging to the Adamic ontology either, who walk, Paul says, as mere Adamic people in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4. So I couldn't speak to you as, un, as to adults because you're still babies, he said to them. So it's only discerned by those who are spiritually taught. It is being revealed That is, this deliverance is being revealed by the Holy Spirit as the things that are freely given to us by God through Jesus Christ. And again, it is revealed to spiritual, pneumatic, not to carnal or to soulish people clinging to the Adamic or carnal existence. So this is entirely in accordance with the retrospective perspective that Paul is writing Romans from. Which means this, it simply means this, that when one is in Christ, then and only then can you assess your previous situation outside of Christ. You can't do that from inside that outside of Christ position. You don't even know how bad off you are until you're in Christ when you see how bad off you were, but you're no longer that way. Thanks be to God. It's a retrospective thing. And Romans 5 through 8 is a retrospective view. Let me just say it this way. It is only in Christ and by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, the Spirit of Christ, that we have the real capacity to understand. Outside, what did the psalmist say? There is none that understands, meaning understands God. There is none that seeks God. There is none that acts truly kindly, and that's because the only true kindness is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, in Galatians 5.22. Only in Christ, therefore, 
And by the spirit, does one have the real capacity to understand, to seek after God, to act kindly, and even to acknowledge the glory of God in the celestial creation? The heavens declare the glory of God was written by an alert and awakened, illuminated psalmist, not by a pagan. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth, his handiwork. I'll be picking another fight here as if we need another fight. Let me pick another fight. This is the fight where I have a powerful ally in Professor Sadar. The fight against the promoters of an anthropogenic climate catastrophe. Anthropogenic meaning that the climate change is disastrous and it's caused by man. Anthropogenic. This is sort of like the teacher whose gospel is anthropocentric. Those who are putting forth, including theologians, including theologians that believe what I believe today, they're putting forth this notion of an anthropogenic or humanly caused climate catastrophe, which is the number one existential threat against us right now, they say, with wide eyes. And the SDS, Student for Democratic Society Press, picks up on it and hammers it and hammers it and hammers it, mainly because a lot of people are getting rich by putting this thing forward. Because this promoters of anthropogenic climate catastrophe are like the teacher, because they assume that human beings can undo the work of God in creation. Even as the teacher assumes, and also his ilk, his cohorts, do not recognize redemption as totally the act of God in Christ. That's why they're always insecure about your position. And it's going to be only revealed in the eschatological day of judgment when God stacks up your works. So there's insecurity. So might as well pick another fight. Just when you thought you were in a camp... You're not in their camp. So we have to keep coming outside the camp, don't we? To bear the reproach of the one who bore the reproaches that were meant for the Father. Our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. Anyone gripped by this revelation has to go outside the traditional encampments. There's no way around it. Doesn't mean you have to leave your church, but your mind and your thought and your spirit are leaving. As the song says, my spirit is crying for leaving. That's stairway to heaven. That's not biblical, but that's in my mind from time to time. Romans 3.23, for you see, Paul says, all sinned. This is the simple past tense that it envelops the entirety of the human race in Adam. All sinned. Where did this come from in Romans 3.12? We fired the arrow from Romans 3.12. All Together, and at the same time, they have turned away. How could all the human race and all of its sequential generations, first of all, be seen? Only by God seeing it. And how can they all at once and at the same time turn away? Because in Adam's sin, all sinned. All sinned. For you see, all sinned, the simple past tense, the aorist, contemplates the entirety of humanity sinning in the act of Adam's transgression. 
That's Romans 3.12, fired into Romans 5.12. For as one man sinned, and sin passed into the whole human race, and with sin, death, etc. So, as a result, they keep lacking the glory of God. That includes lacking his commendation, as Romans 3.10-19 already taught. They all continually fall short of the full and true humanity that is exemplified in one man, Christ Jesus, risen from the dead. If you want to know what true humanity is, it's the risen Jesus. And that's your future. When you see him, you see your future glorified. You see all sin, Paul said. And as a result, they keep lacking the glory of God. Verse 24, and I've translated it this way to get the sense. It's when you get the sense of the scripture as the scripture is exegeted, according to Nehemiah 8, 8 through 10, that the people go out rejoicing. If you just read the Bible, you get depressed. I used to get depressed all the time reading 1 John, condemned in my mind. I'd read Paul and get condemned. I'd read Romans 1 through 3 and get condemned. And then I'd say, what's it mean here that there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus? I'm condemned all to hell and gone. I don't get this until it started to be the sense was given. Here's the sense of Romans 3.24. That same all, that same all that sinned being delivered Again, that word dikaio has to be delivered because dikaiosune means deliverance. The deliverance of God being that we could say divinely delivered. Really have to get used to not translating this as justified. That same all being delivered as a gift from God, which I would translate unconditionally. That same all being delivered unconditionally as a gift by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In fact, we could even say in 1 Corinthians 1.30, God has made him to be for us redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's a release by ransom in one definition, although that's not complete. And that was that release by ransom was accomplished for everyone. According to Mark 10:45, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The interpretation of many is all. In 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who is equal to God and equal to man, therefore the only proper mediator who gave his life as a ransom for all. Many equals all. Romans 5, 18 and 19, the many equals all. Is an all-saving Savior coming into focus through Paul's epistles? I think so, but we're not done. We're only on the 39th hour here. And we're going to wind this up pretty soon, but verse 25, speaking of Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. As the mercy seat through, listen carefully, not faith in his blood, but the faithfulness of his blood. Through the faithfulness 
of his blood, meaning God set him forth publicly. As one of the preachers in Acts says, this thing wasn't done in a corner. This wasn't done in a corner. Take that, Mr. Corner. (laughs) Never mind. You don't know who he is. Anyways, this thing wasn't done in a corner. It was done publicly. God set forth and appointed and placed his son as the fulfillment of the mercy seat in Exodus. You see, what's happening here? The Torah is bearing witness to the gospel about God's son. So this should be translated this, whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat through the faithfulness of his blood, which by that mean, it means by his faithful death. God has set him forth. Doesn't that make sense? Of course it makes sense. His blood, like his obedience, like his faithfulness, refers to his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, whereby God has also highly exalted him, enthroned him, given him a name above every other name, so that at the mention of the name Jesus, every knee will genuflect to Yahweh. Because the declaration there is not Jesus is Lord, but Yahweh is Yeshua. To the glory of God the Father. That means after that universal genuflection, that universal confession, which Romans Revelation 5.13 makes all creation say, as well as all humanity, God is glorified because God becomes all in all. When Christ submits himself to the Father, it doesn't mean he's subordinate in terms of essence or rank. It means he's submitting himself and all creation in him to the Father so that the Father who was always in Christ will be in Christ in whom is all creation. So God will be in all creation and all creation will be in God. Death has to cough up all its victims. Death has been defeated when Jesus Christ could not be held by Sheol just like the whale shark couldn't contain Jonah but had to puke him up. The earth, the grave, Sheol, the place of the dead, could not hold Jesus Christ. His resurrection from the dead is the indicator that death has to give up all its victims before death itself is annihilated, along with Hades or Sheol or the domain of the dead, which has nothing to do with human conceptions, medieval conceptions, Milton's conceptions, Dante's inferno conception of a punitive, horrifying existence after death. That's not what the Bible ever teaches, ever, as we've taught before. So then, whom God, that's Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat through the faithfulness of his blood, or we could say this, through his faithful death, his faithfulness unto death. What's the whole point of the scripture? What's the whole point of the gospel in Romans 1:17? My righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live resurrection by his faithfulness because of his faithful obedience to the extent of death. He will live by resurrection. Don't you know that when you were baptized, incorporated into him, you were incorporated into that death? So Paul goes on to say, this was to be a proof of his saving act through the passing over. See, he's still staying with an Exodus metaphor, the passing over of the houses in the ghetto where the Jews lived in Egypt, in Goshen, and the 
They painted their doorpost with the blood of a lamb that was slain. And the angel of death came to that house and passed over, passed over. What God is saying here through Paul is that God passed over all the sins of all mankind from Adam to Christ. He passed over all of them. Because Christ was going to die for all of those sins. We aren't separated from fellowship with God because God is wrathful, but because we are sinful. So God did something about our sinfulness. So where we're going with this is you should not, and I should not, consider the cross as a means of appeasement of God's wrath. We should rather consider the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ an extraordinary benevolent act on the part of God to destroy the barrier between us and him, which is our sin. It makes a big difference in how you view God. So he says, this was to be a proof of his saving act through the passing over of sins committed previously, that is, from Adam to Christ, as we see in Romans 5, 13 to 15. By the clemency of God, for the proof again of his deliverance, his righteous saving act, in the present time, the present time, God is still revealing in the 21st century, in the present time, the time after Christ's atoning death, burial, resurrection, and enthronement. So the clemency of God in the past, for the proof again of his righteous saving act, In the present time, to the end that God is both right as well as the deliverer of the one who is, we could say, a participator in the faithfulness of Jesus. The one who is of or the beneficiary of the faithfulness of Jesus. I am what I am by the grace of God, not by my personal faith. I am what I am by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who I thank every day for gifting me with a thing called faith. Have a deep and abiding faith, he said to me, and I accept it. And it was this giftedness of faith, which is my participation in his faithfulness. It isn't courage that keeps a preacher preaching for 40 years. It's participation in Messiah's fidelity. It isn't perseverance in a stoic sense with a stiff upper lip that keeps you plugging. It's participation in the faithfulness of Messiah who is in you and who lives in you and in whom you live and move and have your being. We'll close now as we wind this down. Look how it goes. Verse 327. Doesn't this bring us back to last week? Now I see what the Spirit was doing last week. Where's boasting then? The teacher says this. Where's boasting then? Paul answers, shut out. The teacher says, through what sort of Torah? A Torah or a teaching about works? No way, Paul says. No way. Through a Torah of faithfulness. Now, from 327 to 331, we have the four arguments right in that little nutshell that God unfolds, that Paul unfolds in his confirmation and defense of the gospel in Romans 4. 
four things in Romans 3.27, beginning with boasting and ending with circumcision. Paul deals with in Romans 4, beginning with this. Look at 4.1. Jump there and we'll see where we're going. I always like to point to where we're going. I'll just say, point to where you're going. I've been there. And I'm living there. The teacher says in Romans 4, 1 to 2, what shall we say then? Have we, meaning Jews, you you and me, Paul, we Jews, have we found Abraham to be our forefather according to the flesh? And then he says this, if Abraham had been justified by works, he's kind of using a twisted version of James's argument in James 2. If Abraham had been justified by works, he has a ground for boasting. There is boasting. Paul says, yeah, but not before God. There's a lot of boasting that people around you, sycophants, will clap for you. People around you that are sick, sycophants, will clap for you because you've boasted about something, but you do it subtly. You do it very subtly when we boast. We, we say it humbly. And everyone around us will applaud us because we can boast before men, but not before God. I can't wait until the day when everybody's before God and all the boasting that men have done that men have applauded for won't be anymore. Our whole boast will be in the Lord at God the Father's right hand, enthroned. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity to look into your perfect law, your fulfilled Torah. Thank you for a, a revelation of a deliverance. And at the same time that we say this, a message which is sweet in our mouth, it becomes bitter in our stomach because this very message, which is the revelation that you want to grip your people, is being resisted by those who... As Stephen said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Why is it that we resist the Holy Spirit when he desires to reveal more and more and more of the superabundance of grace? That's why this message so sweet to speak is also bitter in the stomach. It is an identification with the rejected one. When this message is rejected, the messenger has the privilege of identifying with the one who was rejected by men. But it also indicates the privilege of being identified with him. For may I never boast in anything, Paul said except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me.